This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 159 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, with the help of special guest J.S. Arquin, we discuss James McTeague's 2006 film, V for Vendetta. Our guest this week is an author, voice actor, audiobook narrator, and producer, and the host of the Overcast podcast. Welcome to the show, J.S. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Uh, Several months ago, I sent you a short story. And I, you know, cross my fingers, like I send many short stories out to different markets. And, uh, you know, the overcast is a good one. And I was I was hoping. And, you know, to my delight, you accepted it. That story came out about two weeks ago, I think, roughly. Um, very exciting. And then um, you commented on our V for Vendetta post about how you how much you like this, this uh, comic and film, actually. And I was like, OK, that'd be perfect. We got to do a crossover event. So I threw out the invitation and here we are. Yeah, it was it was a great fortuitous timing. I just I saw the post and I was like, oh, I'm so excited. I love your podcast and I love V for Vendetta. And uh, I'm so excited that you invited me to be a part of this. Yeah, thanks for coming, man. This is also pre-election. We want to say this. We're recording this on November 2nd. So this is before the election. (laughs) We do not know the outcome. (laughs) The day before the election. We don't know the outcome. So some of the things we say may end up feeling dated. Who knows what's going to happen? So I just wanted everybody to know that going into this episode. That's right. If you're hunkered down in your bunker right now, just, you know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there is an event horizon tomorrow and I can't see past it. So uh, it, who knows what, what the uh, what Thursday will look like. It, it could be a year from now for all I know. Also, like we can't miss the opportunity to drop a V for Vendetta episode on the 5th of November, right? Like you, you can't miss that. Had to happen. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it lines up with our normal Thursday release. Yeah, it's um, perfect. The parallels are not lost on anybody on this podcast <laughs> to what's going on today. Um, I think that there's a lot of reasons why we wanted to do this project, but I think the main one is with with sort of the stuff that's gone in, on in this country over the last four years. We felt like this is a good time to release this kind of episode, and um, you know we'll see we'll see how the election pans out from here. So JS, you said that you are a fan of V for Vendetta. I wanted to ask you. Did you read the comic or see the movie first? Do you remember? And if so, when did that happen? I probably read the comic uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, I've, I've always been very into comics. Um, but however, I don't really have any memory of that. So I can't say for certain that that's right. what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so so the uh, we talked a little bit last week about Alan Moore. And we talked about him when we covered Watchmen. Um, this sort of notorious figure in comics. Um, it, does his work, like, would you say his work had any influence on your work? Uh, absolutely. Um, what I like about Alan Moore and, uh, and you could say this about Neil Gaiman and other people working in comics in that time, I really like that they weren't afraid to bring, um, other arts and let's say, you know, things might, people might, might categorize as, um, you know, highbrow 
influences into into comics, you know, like Shakespeare quotes and music and art and, you know, other things. And so they brought all these other elements into comics that really, I feel, um, elevated the art form a bit. You know, they took it kind of from pulp and made it something a little more serious, made it something a little deeper, something you could kind of dig into and uh, unearth more layers in. And um, yeah, I really appreciated that. And uh, absolutely, that's something I've tried to <laughs> pull forward into my own work. As we all should, I would think. Um, so I wanted to touch a little bit on uh, last week, just real quick. I listened back to our episode. There's a couple of points I didn't maybe make as clearly as I wanted to. And I figured, hey, I got another shot here. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revisit just, just real quickly if you guys are okay with that. First off, I was making a list of like different ideologies. And I said something like, every one of these ideologies has something to it. And in that list was fascism. And I just want to amend that and say, no, it doesn't. Fascism should not have been on that list. Uh, it was kind of one of those mm-hmm. things I was too busy talking about all the other ones, and I forgot that I had said that. Fascism has no redeeming qualities at all. Um, it is an absence of an ideology, in my opinion. It's abdicating all individual thought to, and just latching onto a strong man who can tell you that you don't need to care about morality and you can sort of just... Give give over to someone else, and uh, you know, just so much awful shit happens when you do that. Um, that really, it it has no place, in my opinion, in in civilized world. Um, so I want to make sure I was clear about that. Um, <laughs> and then second off, I also talked a lot about like the majority and how like the majority um, can be overwhelmed by a by a by a vicious minority who can like you know, manipulate the system to get in control and that minority can um, exert power and that then the majority can sort of fight back. That's all very colored by what's happening in America right now. But I also want to make it clear that sometimes the majority can be wrong and the minority can be the ones in the right because if basic human rights are being violated, it doesn't matter if the majority power appeals to the majority of citizens. If people are being murdered and, you know, these horrific things are happening, then that minority has the moral obligation to combat it. And so I don't, I don't want to get too caught up in the moment we're in in America and maybe make some statements that, that don't, don't really apply everywhere else. So I, just wanted, I wanted to clear those couple of things. Well, up. you know, Alan Moore famously didn't see this movie, he wanted to be removed. And we'll talk some more about that in a little bit uh, from every, all the promotional material and even like his name removed from the credits. He famously said that this story, it was taken away from England and turned into like a Bush era political movie um, that was very much commenting on like the like the the war in the Middle East, um, like like a lot of the things that were going on in America where he felt like as English people, they he felt like they should they were too afraid to make a story about their own country and make statements on their own country. So they did it about Bush during during that time period. Interesting. Is McTeague British? I just looked it up. He's not English. He's Australian. So still writing about American politics as an Australian uh, and a British story. That was kind of interesting. So uh, I would love to hear sort of general thoughts from you guys. I I feel like we've kind of already said some stuff, but maybe history with the material first time you saw the movie and then, um, you know, how you felt about this viewing, especially considering the current situation of things in, in this country. Well, I saw first saw this movie when it came out in the theaters, um, and I loved it immediately. Um, a little little history about me: I am very much uh, against state oppression uh, in general. Um, 
I'm I'm all about rebellions and the the underdogs rising up. In fact, the uh, the tagline on my my website, uh, my author website, is uh, the underdogs will rise. And so that's that's really kind of my mo in life. I'm all about people rising up and taking their own power and not letting themselves be oppressed and stamped on by the uh, the big brother forces of the state. And so uh, this this movie is right up my alley in many ways. And, um, you know, considering that I saw it when I was younger, it might have even helped form that in my mind. I mean, not mm-hmm. that it wasn't already there, but certainly to, to reinforce that kind of uh, those kind of ideas in me for sure. Yeah, same. I think I also saw it in the theater when it came out. This was like kind of falling on the heels of The Matrix. And, and, you know, I saw that the the Wachowski sisters were attached to the film. I think I thought they were directing, but instead they're they're just writers. Um, But but still, it was like the the mystique of The Matrix was there and there was some slow motion in the in the trailers. And I remember thinking, oh, this is really cool. And I did enjoy it. um, But I think some of the expectations I went into might have fucked with me a little bit because I feel like I've always had a slightly mixed feeling about this movie. Like there's elements of it that I really love and there's other elements of it that I'm, I don't know, not so fond of. Um, This viewing, I think, sort of reinforced that. Having read the comic helped me a lot, like because I really enjoyed the comic. And I think bringing that material to the adaptation, um, I was able to like really understand V as a character and see a lot more there. Um, and, and I think that's the best way to experience this movie, I think. I mean, I know a lot of people won't do that, but if, if possible, to read the comic first and then watch it. Um, and then I, there was still a few things I was like nitpicking throughout that just, it was like, I was frustrated because I was like, this movie could be so, so good. And yet they're making a few choices that I just don't love, um, which I will get into as we go through like sp- with specific examples. See if you guys uh, agree or disagree. I'll be curious to see. Yeah, I saw this movie in theaters as well. And, and for me, it was just one of those movies where I think in subsequent viewings, I've seen more flaws than the first time. The first time I saw it, I was like fully in love with it. Um, but I, I think still to this day, it stands as like a really, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a it's one of those movies that I think I can understand why Alan Moore has famously has said that it's sort of a defanged version of his comics. But I also am thinking of it as like the filmmaker saying, what what's going to make more of a cultural impact something that's more palatable and easier for an audience to sort of approach um and maybe that's what's going on here a little bit i don't want to speak for the filmmaker too much but you know someone like me seeing it when i when i did i felt like it definitely opened up that sort of idea in my mind that like you know we we uh, you know government should be afraid of its people people shouldn't be afraid of the government like that that kind of thing that's pretty powerful stuff and and i think that it's executed well in this movie and although maybe they leaned into some of the you know more hollywood aspects of like the action and things like that it's i think it still stands as a really solid movie yeah so one thing i noticed uh i I watched an interview with alan moore and uh i think he was talking about how in in the adaptation racism although he hadn't seen it he had like read the screenplay only i think he famously doesn't watch them Mm -hmm. which which i i just want to say like that's that's not actually seeing the movie and like that's taking away (laughs) so so many people who (laughs) help it's not the same thing like the performances are lost like so much is lost in that so i feel like he doesn't have a well and and a lot of times stuff gets changed in 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 the uh, on the day of but anyway the um one of the things he said is that the racism was sort of removed from the film and I think the subtext is there. They talk about immigrants a lot, which I think is sort of a stand-in for racism. But he's kind of right. Like, there's not a lot of overtly mm. racist stuff being said. It's all sort of beneath the surface. Um, and I could see getting frustrated with that because 
as we all know, like racism is very directly tied to this style of governing, like this authoritarian fascist, uh, especially with the Nordic fire, like the idea of all these white guys in power. Like, of course, racism is a huge thing. And to sort of like make that such a lesser point in the film, it, it kind of does it a disservice because um, maybe mm. maybe I think the feeling might have been that it would be more palatable for a general audience if you don't touch as much on racism. I, w- right. I would agree with that. But uh, my my thought when I was watching it, because I was thinking that too, I was like, you know, they don't touch on the racism. They do touch on the, the homophobia, obviously. Yes. Um, but I was thinking about it and, you know, at this point in time, in, in the timeline, basically the country is supposed to have purged all these elements from it, right? So all the people of color have already been kicked out of the country. All the, you know, gay people have already been sent to concentration camps or whatever. And so um, it's a little... Unless you want to do flashbacks, it's hard to address that in real time in the the film because there's not going to be people of color in the country because they've already been removed. Just to piggyback on that, there is this this shot at the end of the movie where they're like revealing everyone under the masks, and we're gonna we're giving spoilers because you know we we're, we're assuming that people have listened to our book coverage or or they've seen this movie. Um, everyone's removing their masks. There are black people shown in in that scene at the end, which mm-hmm. is to say that, and you know, clearly a lot of those people had died. Like we see people who we know had died um, returning. And you know, that's not to say like they were, you know, doing all they could to show that like racism was absolutely a part of this. But there is that to show that like, there's the absence of black people throughout the movie and then showing them in the end, taking off masks and things like that. Um, there's, like you said, it's at least implied for people who want to see it there. Sure. Okay, so to talk about the filmmakers a little bit, there's a lot of people to talk about with this movie because, as Luke said, the Wachowski sisters were, were heavily involved. They wrote this, this screenplay as well as produced this movie. And I think that their influence can definitely be seen. Um, and when we learn a little bit about James McTeague, it'll, it'll become clear why. So James McTeague is an Australian film and television director. He has been an assistant director on many films, including Dark City, The Matrix Trilogy, and Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones. He made his directorial debut with the 2005 film V for Vendetta to critical acclaim. Since Vendetta, he has collaborated with the Wachowski sisters an additional three times as the director of The Invasion, Ninja Assassin, and Sense8. And then, so now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Wachowski sisters. Lana Wachowski and Lily Wachowski are American film and television directors, writers, and producers. They have worked as a writing and directing team through most of their professional careers. They made their directing debut in 1996 with Bound and achieved fame with their second film, The Matrix, a major box office success for for which they won the Saturn Award for Best Director. They wrote and directed its two sequels, The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions, both in 2003. Following the commercial success of the Matrix series, they wrote and produced the 2005 film V for Vendetta. The Wachowski sisters wrote and produced the film with Matrix producer Joel Silver, who had previously purchased the film rights to the graphic novel. The Wachowski sisters offered the film to James McTeague, the first assistant director of the Matrix trilogy, as his directorial debut. You can see the influence of the Matrix in this film here because McTeague yeah. was was assistant director on the Matrix films. And then I, whether the Wachowski sisters felt like they didn't have time or they just wanted to be producers and sort of lift up other creatives that they that they had collaborated with before, they they offered it to James McTeague. So I had a very interesting to think because I remember in the trailers, it seemed like they were really pushing the fact that the Wachowski sisters would be you know, it, it was one of their creations. It's bigger names. You, you, it's what you do, right? When you got a big name on it, you, you slap it in the trailer. <laughs> I mean, you, I see that all the time. 
I think that there's a different, you know, there's a varying level of degree that I think people will be involved as producers. Yeah. I think the Wachowski sisters were definitely involved in this. Right. Because, well, I uh, saw they wrote the screenplay, so. I think they were probably on set helping out and, and yeah. you know, doing full on pr producing uh, in, in a lot of ways. You know, the the Matrix like stunt stunt team would eventually go on to like the supervisors would go on to make John Wick and things like that. So there's a lot of people who who came from those Matrix films that went on to do a lot of yeah. a lot of different filmmaking endeavors it's it's really interesting here though because it's james mcteague's you know directorial debut and mm -hmm. there are influences of the action from from the matrix as well i would say yeah there's some standouts in those lists of movies you know dark city you know sense is a lot of fun like there's there's a lot of interesting stuff in there i mean not all of it i would say is definitely you know beloved films but um it, ambitious stuff it seems like you know like like they really are tackling big ideas which you know more power to them I mean, and t to talk about the the Wachowski sisters a little bit more, just the the a lot of the movies that they've gone on to make, Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas, um, Jupiter Ascending, a lot of those ones, like say what you will about each one, I I you know I think some of those are are pretty solid, but they swing for the fences, like you said, like they don't care if it's if it's going to be a miss because like they're willing to take a huge a huge swing. Nice. I think that uh, describes Alan Moore a little bit too. So the <laughs> the two of them <laughs> yeah. working together, I mean, not working together, but anyway, them adapting an Alan Moore project uh, is very apt. Yeah. It's a shame, you know, honestly, what happened with Alan Moore. And I feel like there's a lot more to the stories with him and his adaptation stuff. But it's like, what would it have looked like if he could have been more involved in some of this stuff? And, you know, maybe it's impossible. Maybe he's just one of those guys who like would never be able to, to you know, work with somebody else on an adaptation. Maybe he's too much of a control freak. I don't know. But I don't know. I just I just wonder sometimes like what could have been if he hadn't been burned by a, what do we talk about? League League of Extraordinary Gentlemen really seemed to, yeah. to, to sour him on adaptations in general. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was the the big the big sticking point for him. But there was a lot I, I that I was reading into that I'll actually tell you about now. Okay. Um, that that this movie was kind of a, a big turning point for him with film as well. Like this this solidified it. I would say the fact that he did not want anything to do with Hollywood. And say what you will, I think I do think Alan Moore is overly critical of a lot of the things that have been adapted of his work because he's so not willing to collaborate with Hollywood. You know, he he's ready to tear down this movie having not even seen it and like mm -hmm. you know that's the story for all of the stuff that has tried to be adapted since you know he's basically um distanced himself from hollywood he greatly disliked this movie criticizing the script for having plot holes you wouldn't have gotten away with on whizzer and chips in the 1960s which is a reference that i don't understand but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, nope it sounds you know I understand, like, the context. He ended <laughs> he ended cooperation with his publisher, DC Comics, after its corporate parents, Warner Brothers, failed to re retract statements about Moore's supposed endorsement of this movie. Producer Joel Silver said at a press conference that screenwriter Lana Wachowski had talked with Moore and that Moore was very excited about what Lana had to say. Moore disputed this, reporting that he told Wachowski, I didn't want anything to do with, the, with films. I wasn't interested in Hollywood and and demanded that DC Comics force Warner Brothers to issue a public retraction and apology for Silver's blatant lies. Although Silver called Moore directly to apologize, no public retraction appeared. Moore was quoted as saying that the comic book had been specifically about things like fascism and anarchy. The words fascism and anarchy occur nowhere in the film. It's been turned into a Bush-era parable by people too timid to see a political satire in their own country. This conflict between Moore and DC Comics was the subject of an article in the New York Times on March 12, 2006, five days before the U.S. release. 
In the New York Times article, Silver stated that about 20 years prior to this film's release, he met with Moore and David Gibbons when Silver acquired the movie rights to V for Vendetta and Watchmen. Silver stated, Alan was odd, but he was enthusiastic and encouraging us to do this. I had foolishly thought that he would continue feeling that way today, not realizing that he wouldn't. The New York Times article also interviewed David Lloyd about Moore's reaction to the film's production, stating, Mr. Lloyd, the illustrator of V for Vendetta, also found it difficult to sympathize with Mr. Moore's protests. When he and Mr. Moore sold their film rights to the comic book, Mr. Lloyd said, quote, We didn't do it innocently. Neither myself nor Alan thought we were signing it over to a board of trustees who would look after it like it was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Interesting, man. I don't know. That stuff's all so fascinating to me, you know? Like, it, it, most authors, you know, they, they, they know that they don't have full control over an adaptation and are happy to give a quote. Like, yeah, I'm excited to see what they're going to do with it. Because, you know, the better the movie does, normally that lends, that leads itself to more book sales. So it's interesting to see Alan Moore just completely go the other direction. <laughs> it sounds like they were not expecting that. He's, he's cementing yeah. his uh, reputation as a curmudgeon. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Well earned. <laughs> I mean, it, it's tough, too, because, like, that's his legacy, right? Like, his yeah. legacy is his writing. When I think about Alan Moore, I think about all of this, all of these political views and the ways that he was able to thread these into some amazing stories. But also in the same time, I think about all these adaptations that have continued his legacy that he is just like completely distanced himself from and doesn't want anything to do with. Like the fact that he he may never watch Watchmen, like the HBO series. They took tons of liberties. They did a lot of things that I feel like he probably wouldn't have agreed with. But at the same time, I think being the sort of storyteller he is, he would appreciate it and i i don't know i think yeah, it's, a, it's shame. a shame that we'll never know his thoughts on it maybe i mean as you know as a creator i would think that would be really weird uh you know especially something you've put your heart and soul into and put these these views and these opinions that you hold very strongly and you know your whole point is to try to communicate them and then you know somebody adapts it and as you said you know the words fascism and anarchy don't even appear in the film and those were his main points in writing the graphic novel i mean he kind of is justified in feeling disappointed and i can you know understand a little bit him maybe not wanting to see adaptations because just knowing that he's going to have a a violent internal reaction against them (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's a valid way to respond to it i i think it's as someone myself who hopes to you know write stuff and, and maybe have something adapted one day, knock on wood, that would be amazing, right? I would hope that in that moment I could diff, you know I could distance myself and realize that when someone makes an adaptation, they're making their own work of art, and the relation is there to what you made, but it is not your work, and it's okay. It's okay for that to exist and not be your work. And, and, and I don't know, like, I, I would hope that you can be comfortable with that. Like I, I, all of that being said, like, of course, you know, if they, if they completely change some core storyline thing that you're, you're super attached to, you're going to get upset about it. you know, as someone who created it and yeah. you're like, how could you possibly yeah. change this? So I understand it. I, I get both sides of it, but uh, yeah, this is the double edged sort of adaptation that we talk about all the time, right? Yeah. Like you're, it's, it's always going to be this way. It's like, uh, don't, don't give away adaptation rights if you don't want to see it, it be changed. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. the only, that's the only possible way. To, yeah. That's to the thing. He sold the rights revision. to it. He could have not done that. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he was happy to cash the check. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. At least at the time, you know, maybe he regrets it now, but at the time I'm sure he was. Okay, so we're going to get into plot here. I'm going to read uh, three sections of plot, and then we'll just sort of react to it as we can. One at a time. One at a time. 
2027, the world is in turmoil with the United States fractured as a result of a second civil war and a pandemic of the St. Mary's virus ravaging Europe. The United Kingdom is ruled as a neo-fascist police state by the Norse Fire Party, helmed by all-powerful High Chancellor Adam Sutler. Political opponents, immigrants, Jews, Muslims, atheists, homosexuals, and other, in quotes, undesirables, are imprisoned and executed. On November 4th, a vigilante in a Guy Fox mask, V, rescues Evie Hammond from members of the Fingermen, secret police. They watch his demolition of the Old Bailey, accompanied by fireworks. Inspector Finch investigates V's activities. V hijacks a British television network broadcast to claim responsibility for the destruction, encouraging the people of Britain to rebel against their government and meet him on next year's Guy Fox night outside of the Houses of Parliament. The police attempt to capture V. Evie helps him escape, but is knocked unconscious. Yeah, so this is the introduction of V, the introduction of Evie Hammond, Natalie Portman. Uh, you know, she's great. I've always been a fan. Hugo Weaving, his voice just comes through and it's, it's so perfect for the role, in my opinion. Um, I, v seems like seems like a, a wild man. And I love uh, Evie's first line to him is, uh, are you like a crazy person? Something like that. It was very good because um, he, he's, you know, he's using the word he's using V words, every other word. And it, it, it sounds out there. Um I thought it was a really good introduction to the movie. Um, I, I love certain scenes from the comics. It felt like were really brought to life, like him up uh, up on the rooftop, sort of orchestrating the explosions. A lot of fun. Um, however, one of my first criticisms came in, and that was the sound that they decided to make his blades make when he was whipping them around. They sound so mm-hmm. cartoony and, and, I don't know, ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and it's just a start of like how I don't like how the blades are dealt with. I'll just go ahead and say, like, later on when the slow-mo scene happens and we have these long trailing uh, lines behind each blade, I, I don't know what it is, but, like, there's just some weird choices made with the blades, in my opinion, that I could have done without, without and honestly, it probably would have worked better for me. But um, other than that, one little off note for me, like, I thought this movie started great, very on board with it. A couple things for me that that stood out to me as being different uh, from the comic, and the first was... The very beginning, before the action starts, before any of this starts, you get an Eevee voiceover as a preface looking back. So essentially, you're you're bookending the entire movie, the entire story. Now we know that we're looking back on it. And that, you know, that choice actually kind of makes it safer because it's like now we're telling you a story. We're not living it. This is what happened in the past. Um, and so in that way, you know, it actually puts everything at, at one remove and makes it a little uh, safer, like I said, for the mm. for the viewer. Um, and I thought that was an interesting choice by the filmmakers to do that. Yeah, I mean, it may, again, maybe that's that's something that immediately uh, Moore had a had a bad reaction to. Maybe he was like, "Oh, of course you're gonna you're not gonna have us live through it. It's gonna be something that's like sort of more Hollywood and safer." Yeah, I could see him reacting poorly to that right off the bat. Like, and that's that's the first you know word spoken in the movie, the narration. So yeah. I'm sure he. I, I would love to be a fly on the wall while he reads the <laughs> screenplay. <laughs> so they're also sort of establishing the, this connection to Guy Fox, right? Because it's the Guy Fox story is what they start out with, and even with that. As, as someone who isn't familiar with the, the Guy Fox story, although we learned about it, like James and I looked it up last week, so like I know it now. But I remember even watching the movie the first time, I was still sort of unclear, like who Guy Fox was, and like 
the idea that this is like um, V's sort of celebrating this this failed attempt at blowing up Parliament in a way that other people don't is what I was unclear on. Like, I thought maybe other people also celebrated it, but that's not the case. He's trying to sort of, like, reclaim the holiday or reclaim the 5th of November. Um, all of this was unclear to me. So even with the expl- explanation, I felt like it still kind of failed to explain what's going on with that, with the whole mask and everything. So it's kind of yeah. a bummer. <laughs> I definitely remember the first time I saw it, I, I was like, yeah, that's a great rhyme. Like, I, I think it's very cool, and there's a, good, a lot of good lore to it with, like, the remember, remember the 5th of November and the gunpowder, treason, and plot. Uh-huh. Like, that's all awesome. But I was also very unclear. And I wonder if, like, you know, British audiences were like, oh, yeah, yeah Guy Fox Day. Like, I wonder how they re- they reacted to it. I, I would assume if they had the knowledge of, of the historical, you know, moment, then they probably were like, oh, this is awesome. I noticed that that was a thing that they really established, uh, as we said in the, the prologue with Evie saying the rhyme. Um, I think she said the rhyme at the beginning, didn't she? I think so, yeah. I think yeah, yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that was something that the movie focused on very clearly, you know, with, was Guy Fox and 5th of November, remember, remember. Um, I don't think Guy Fox was ever directly mentioned in the comic. I mean, he wore the mask, but I really think that that's, that was it. Like, you were expected to draw your own conclusions there, whereas the movie really hammered on that I think really he might be mentioned, but there's definitely no scenes of him, Yeah. I, I, yeah, the I rhyme think, is not I, in the comic. That's for sure. The rhyme isn't in the comic. That's true. But uh, yeah, I think Guy Fox might be offhand mentioned. But actually, it might, it might be like one of those weird invented memories. Maybe it didn't happen. I don't know. <laughs> Evie was a lot stronger in the intro to the movie than she was in the intro to the comic. Yeah, Absolutely. in the intro to the comic, she's out there uh, trying to turn a trick, which is more desperate, uh, but it's weaker. You know, and in the in the movie, she's. She gets accosted by the fingermen and she pulls out Mace. You know, she fights back. So from the mm-hmm. very beginning, Evie is a much stronger character in the movie. And and I really like that choice, especially considering, you know, where she goes in her journey from that point. Right. I feel better about her being a little older, too, just because, like, <laughs> uh, you know, seeing a 16-year-old go through the things that she has to go through is a little more tough yeah. for, for me to swallow. <laughs> but Yeah, the Evie changes throughout hold true, too. Like, she she's a... A stronger character, a more interesting character, in my opinion. Um, definitely a co-sign on that idea that, that that was an improvement. Yeah, and another another change I'd like to talk about is the change in sort of the power structure that they're fighting against. Um, because I think Alan Moore went out of his way to show humanity, maybe, or 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 at least have the have the villains be more three dimensional. Whereas in this, they're very much sort of the Empire. They're evil. They uh, have no redeeming qualities. Not that anybody, not that there really were redeeming qualities in the comic, but they were more complicated characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, that led to it being a more nuanced, um, more realistic, uh, you know, threat that you would be fighting against. Whereas this is just sort of like they're bad and they, they kill and they have, you know, very, very, like, the it's just, just Hitler, you know, like full yeah. on Hitler. Um, and it's not as nuanced. And I, I just wonder, you know, I think that can work for a general audience who might, you know, it's it's an easier step for, I think, a general audience to say, like, OK, bad person. And that's our, you know, that we don't need to be conflicted about the villain. We don't have time and maybe a movie to, to really dig into that. But uh, what did you guys think about that change? I agree that it's certainly a lot easier to digest uh, for a movie audience. And I mean, that's one of the as you guys are well aware 
one of the biggest differences between uh, written form and movie adaptations is that you have more time to explore those nuances in a in a written form, whereas with a movie, you know, you're you're very constrained and you have to really winnow it down to okay, what's the main point? And so, you know, in the movie, the main point is fight the power, and as you said, they just chose to make the power evil. You know, here's the evil empire and go. And, you know, it makes for a cleaner movie for sure, but definitely would have been more interesting if they had more time or were able to make some of those villains more nuanced as they were in the comic. I completely agree. Yeah. And and what's lost there? Like, I agree with all the reasons you guys are both saying as to why they did it that way. But you lose a little bit of the the reaction that you might have reading where you you can see real people in these positions and you can recognize um, that these are human beings that you might know or that you've known people like this that can become these people. Whereas when you see these like mustache twirling evil guys on screen, it's it, it's really easy to distance yourself and just go like, well, they're obviously bad, um, which, you know, maybe for, it doesn't force the introspection a little bit of like, am I am I are there people like that in government today? Which, you know, when I'm reading the comic, I'm thinking that, you know, the whole time. Right. Well, yeah. And, and like the idea that Alan Moore is planting is, is like these people, as much as they some of them might want you to believe they're this evil stalwart empire sort of like, you know, unmovable people, they're humans. And like if you if you, you know, turn the screws the right way, they'll crack, too. They're not they're not right. like these these impenetrable fortresses that they would want you to think. And so they're just people in that way as well. Yeah, and so there's also, like you touched on before, the connection to the Bush administration. Um, I think that's definitely clear with the black bagging that keeps happening. Uh, it's very re- reminiscent of like Guantanamo Bay um, and you know, a lot of those like infamous photographs that came out of there and, and, and even the facility that we see later on and the, the experiments being done, although obviously, you know, hearkening back to, to, to the Nazis and the concentration camps, I think it's also being tied to that more modern uh, reference point for people. So... I think in 2006, that really hits, right? Like, that's that's something that is on everyone's mind and, and feels very topical. Do, okay, so do we want to talk anything about that BTN uh, uh, sort of invasion? I actually liked that they uh, that they moved it forward in the movie. It happens a lot sooner. It's later in the, in the comic. And mm-hmm. um, I like that they put Evie there. This is where she works. And this is, instead of V taking her directly from where he saves her at the very beginning into his lair... At this point, she makes the choice to help him, and therefore he has no choice but to take her to his lair to protect her, which I yeah. think is a, a much, much better story. And it gives Evie agency, you know? She chose yeah. to act. She chose to help V. And so therefore she is there, you know, by her own choice. She's not just this innocent girl plucked off the street and saved by V. Yeah, and that makes V's decision to bring her much more, you know, motivated, I would say. Like you said, like, it's not just a random girl that he's like, I'm going to take her and, and mold her to my will and make her this new, this new, you know, Avenger. She's she's instead, like, already shown that she's willing to fight back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so the second part of the synopsis. V takes Evie to his home, where she is told she must remain for one year. V kills Louis Prothero, Norse Fire's chief propagandist, and Anthony Lilliman, the Bishop of London. Evie offers to help, but escapes to the home of her boss, talk show host Gordon Dietrich, 
In return for Evie trusting him, Gordon reveals subversive paintings and antique Quran and homoerotic photographs. Fee confronts Dr. Delia Surridge, who experimented on him and others at Lark Hill Concentration Camp. He kills her painlessly. After Gordon satirizes the government on his show, his home is raided and Evie is captured. She is tortured for information about V, her only solace being a note written by Valerie Page, a prisoner tortured and killed for being lesbian. Evie is to be executed unless she reveals V's location. When she says she would rather die, she is released, finding herself in V's home. V staged her imprisonment to free her from her fears. The note was real, passed from Valerie to V when he was imprisoned. Evie leaves him, promising to return before November 5th. Yeah, this part contains the, the, the line that you referenced earlier, people should not be afraid of their governments, governments should be afraid of their people. And fantastic line, um, has been misunderstood and co-opted by some of the worst people out there. And it's really unfortunate. Yeah. I, I, read a, I was reading an interview where Hugo Weaving was asked about this, and like specifically The Matrix and V for Vendetta, and how like a bunch of alt-right people are like touting these you know, using the terminology and stuff. And it's, it's so frustrating. And he called them all fucking idiots. I think something, something to that effect. Um, because it's like, no, this isn't about like how you don't want to have to wear a seatbelt or, or whatever it might be. Like, this is about actual oppression from the government and, and, uh, fighting back against that. Um, you know, it's not the don't tread on me bullshit that, that so many people like to think it is, <laughs> but anyway, I mean, it's open to interpretation, I guess. <laughs> and that was, I think one of the, one of the powerful messages, uh, probably the central message of the movie, uh, that actually uh, was not in the comic because the comic was focused on anarchy, and that is collective action. That, you know, in V's announcement to the people, he invites them all. He says, hey, in a year, I want all of you to meet me outside of Parliament, and together we will do this. Uh, Whereas, you know, in the comic, that invitation never happened. V is essentially a lone wolf, uh, and you know, he's doing his thing. Yeah. In, in changing sort of the message, I guess, or, or sort of specifically the time period, you know, the, the anarchy made sense for what, for what Moore was trying to say, the story he was setting up. And I think in changing that fundamental part of the story and changing it to sort of a Bush era allegory, I think, you know, having it be about freedom and having it be about the, the people like, um, the, the government should be representatives for the people. And like, if that's not the case, then the people need to rise up. I think, um, I think smartly changed for, for what this story is in the movie and what they were trying to tell. I think both have valid points, right? Like, a, you know, it's like, I, I think the more pessimistic way to look at it is to say that, you know, maybe sometimes you got to do something on your own. Maybe you won't have the support of everyone else, but you can still be sort of confident in the power of your ideas. Right. And the power of your principles. And that's what we see in the comic with V. Like this is a man who knows his principles and is empowered by them and takes action. And then he does sort of inspire people. Um, We see a lot of anarchy breaking out. But whether or not it's going to lead to something better, I think, is unknown. Um, and, And Alan Moore had said that he's a bit of a political pessimist. And I think that was sort of saying like, yeah, the people who created this Norse fire shit, and, and voted for it originally or what have you, like they're still here and they could still make the same mistake again. Um, whereas in, in the film it dead, it felt like a call to action, like everybody wake up and let's, let's get this shit out of here. And, and, um, in that way it, it is from the beginning when playing the music and drawing people out into the streets and making such a spectacle, it is an invitation for everybody to join V's cause. Absolutely. 
as an audience member, the changes that are made to V specifically also align with that. Like, like we're supposed to see V in a different light than I think we see. I think he's way more violent and sort of unhinged and not even unhinged as much as he's just like willing to kill innocents for the sake of his cause. He's willing to kill whoever, whatever it takes to, in order to, to topple this, this fascist regime and then i think the same can be said for the for the film but it, we they, they humanize v a lot more than i think is done in the in the book and that leads us the audience to also feel the call to action like we're saying we're seeing this person die for this cause um and sort of be a martyr and also his his dying wish is to inspire everyone to to you know sort of like know their rights and understand like what they can do in a, in a situation that seems hopeless I want to touch on the uh, Tucker Carlson of this story. <laughs> That's what I ended up calling yeah. him. This this asshole fucking yeah. propagandist. And there's the line where he says, I wish I'd been there. And he looks right into the camera. And that like that paper tiger, empty bravado shit that you see all the time. Like that, that was so perfect. And, um, you know, of course, he gets his come up and it's like in that very scene. So it's, it's very exciting when V shows up uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and sort of ambushes him and he's immediately shown to just be, you know, all bluster. Uh, one thing um, with him and with uh, some of the other executions V carries out is that they're they're a little less poetic in the movie. In yeah. you know, in the film, you get you have the dolls with that guy. You have the communion wafer with the bishop, and none of that, none of that makes it into the movie, which which kind of made me sad because I really liked those little touches in the in the graphic novel. I agree. Novel. Yeah, it's like all poison. It seems like maybe just like a little bit of arsenic or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, you don't you, you don't get the poetic justice. Um, we get we get some backstory here. V. We see we see the Nazi Nazi shit going down. Uh, we see mass graves, you know, experimentation, Mengele type situations. And honestly, like I didn't in 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 this viewing, like I didn't quite understand why uh, V has the sort of mercy that he shows um, uh, the, the 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 woman doctor. Uh, I forget her name. It's not, it's not drawn a blank. Surridge. Surridge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because like, it, like, I guess she just felt bad about it. So he takes pity on her. But like. She was fucking Dr. Mengele, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. She she basically says she's sorry and all this stuff after he's already injected her. And so it's like, how did he know? Unless I guess I guess he'd been surveilling them. Yeah, Yeah, I guess you could say that, but it wasn't it wasn't as clear uh, as it was in the in the the comic. It's it's almost that like weird sexism of like, oh, it's a woman, so he has to treat her differently. But like, she did as much heinous shit as everybody else. Yeah, yeah, to me. More in some cases. I mean, she yeah. was in charge of the, you know, developing the virus, wasn't she? <laughs> yeah, basically. I, I think there was some implication that maybe, like, it was meant to, like, end wars or something. And, like, she had these grand ideals for, like, what it was going to be. Because she was comparing herself to Oppenheimer at one point. Um, yeah, but I don't feel like the case was made for why we shouldn't just hate this woman. Other than V just apparently doesn't as bad as he dislikes the others. I don't know. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, the case was that she feels remorse, which the others don't. But again, yeah. how would V know that? Yeah, I, I did yeah. like the line where, where she said, um, what did you say? Like, will it matter if I say that I'm sorry? And he said always or something like that. Is that the line? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do I do think there's something being said there, right? Like contrition does matter. It might not save you from the from the consequences of what has happened, but it does matter. And actually, I think that was kind of a nuanced take to, to, to put in the film, which is also, I think, present in the comic, if I remember correctly, in that scene. 
Um, one line that really got me was uh, when the, when the detective is looking into this shit and he has this sort of like conversation with with the other detective and he shuts off all the bugging stuff and he goes, "If our own government was responsible for the deaths of almost a hundred thousand people, would you really want to know?" And I was like, "Oh my <laughs> <Yeah>. god, <laughs> I know, man. Our own fucking government." leading to hundreds of thousands of deaths from a virus. I mean, I know the circumstances are a little different here, but that that one really struck home. It was like one of those surreal moments to be watching this movie in this moment in time. Yeah. Like, I couldn't believe it. And that was one of the, that was one of the big choices that they made that was unique to the movie too. The virus didn't exist in the comic. In the comic it was like a nuclear war, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that made the government way more sinister in this version. I mean, not that you know, they weren't sinister enough in the comic because the concentration camps were still there in the comic, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, it, with the addition of the virus and intentionally releasing it on their own people in order to take power, you know, that yeah. just ups the villain level, like, exponentially. Yeah. <laughs> and then they flag. also created a... Yeah, and then they also created a vaccine that they profited on. Right. right. So it's like, these are things that you could see happening in a capitalistic society like that. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. like war profiteering is, uh, yeah, that really yeah. speaks to American politics. <laughs> um, so I, I did want to touch on uh, the, the Gordon stuff. Um, I think we're, we're, we got that in this bit of bit of summary. He, um, yep. th- they changed him a lot for the movie and his relationship with Evie. And I liked it a lot better in the movie. It, 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 it holds true with all the other things mm-hmm. that I liked about Evie. Um, he's he ends up being sort of a closeted homosexual who isn't out, able to 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 be himself, and it, it, it instead of being kind of creepy, which he seems early on, it's like completely changes the way we look at him. He ends up being this guy that you really like, and then you know obviously he seems a little bit naive, which um, seemed a little out of character for him after after he had just talked about like how much danger he'd be in, but. I, I forgave it. I, I liked the the him like getting out there doing his his shtick, um, and then uh, maybe just like not really foreseeing just how bad the government is and how you know how vicious the repercussions would be from his actions. Um, but you know, good stuff overall. Good changes for that character. I do think that if he had done that one act in a vacuum, had V already not sort of like put pressure on the government in this way he he i think he's thinking in in those terms like he's thinking like this is going to be a slap on the wrist and like we'll be watching you sort of situation because he's so popular he's the most watched tv host or whatever and so Mm -hmm. like he's so popular and then he's sort of his over his his overconfidence comes when he doesn't realize how much pressure the government behind the scenes is under and then that's when they're like you know they're just executing people and taking people out doesn't matter how famous they are um so yeah it but i did love seeing like him him you know stand up to everybody in that way cuz you know using your platform like that is something that i feel like we we see a lot of people doing even today like using that using your voice whatever platform you have to sort of raise awareness for this kind of stuff and at least put put thoughts in people's minds in in ways that they might not already be it's an act of bravery too in a climate like that where censorship is is so harsh and you know it's easy for us to say right we're not going to have someone kicking down our door for releasing this podcast you know but there are places right. in the world where that would happen and um not to say that that couldn't happen here at some point in time too so um but there is something to it you know it really is an act of bravery and an act of defiance um I, one small quibble though I didn't think it was that funny. Like the 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 sort of shtick that he gets up to, it was okay, I guess. And then like having everybody crack up so much, like we kept cutting to people at home just like dying laughing. And like it was something weird where like it's the same reason I don't like laugh tracks. Like I don't like 
I don't like it when people are telling me to laugh. And I felt a little bit like the movie was trying to tell me that this is super funny, even though it wasn't. It was just kind of okay. I don't know. Anyway, that's just a me thing. Yeah. <laughs> I do think maybe like the censorship that's gone on, they haven't had access yeah. to real comedy. No, sort I get of like it. actual <laughs> statement. And like, yeah. Well, it was very, it was a very clear nod to Benny Hill too. I mean, you know, the music yeah, was sure. Benny Hill and just that, that kind of shtick scene is like pretty much directly Benny Hill. So mm-hmm. it's a very British okay. thing. <laughs> that's probably what it is. That's probably what it is. Which, by the way, that's the actual actor who plays the Chancellor, right? Like, that's just him with some makeup on. It had to have been. Like, I, there's no way they had someone who looked that much like the real guy. <laughs> I was like, that's just the guy. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely was him. That was John Hurt. <laughs> uh, I do want to talk about, because I, I don't want to move to the next section until we kind of dig into what goes on with Evie and V V's torturing her and putting her through the whole process and everything. Like how did you, yeah. How did you think that that was handled in the movie versus versus the comic? Because I, I do think there, there are a couple of additions that I, that I enjoy. Well, in the movie, um, it felt like a much shorter time span. First of all, it felt like it all happened within maybe a week in the movie. Whereas in the comic, uh, especially when she gets released and you see how emaciated she is, you really get the feeling that it went on for a long time. Uh, so in that in that way, it was cleaner in the comic, <laughs> I guess. But but a lot of things are rather not not in the comic cleaner in the movie. I mean, um, mm. but I guess that's that's really true of a lot of things in the movie, which is maybe one of the things Alan Moore didn't like because, uh, you know, he, he likes to, to dredge up the dirt a little bit and show that things are not as clean and neat as we want them to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's still ethically a really troubling thing for for V to do here. And, you know, I feel deeply mixed about it. And I I do like that in the film, it seems like Evie can't just forgive him. She has to leave. Mm -hmm. She's like, I can't stay here with you. You know what I mean? Like, she kind of forgives him, but it's like still like a line has been crossed and you can't undo it now. And they only see each other again one more time before he dies. Um, Whereas in the the comic, that's not the case. She gives she forgives him like right away. And I remember being really weird. Um, so, so in, in many ways, I, I, I do prefer how it was handled in the film. Also, uh, really well done. The stuff with Valerie. Um, I, yeah. I remember that being really so touching when I saw it the first time and, um, she just shot really well. I thought the moment where, where they kiss and the sun is sort of behind the kiss, just really beautiful, um, and really captures sort of the, what, what was lost, right? Like you feel the weight of what has been lost, um, and taken from yeah. them. Um, so yeah, I mean the part, it was really interesting, um, and overall, I really liked it. I do remember the big hubbub about this movie before it came out was that Natalie Portman shaved her head. It was like everywhere. People were yeah. losing their minds about it. It seems like such a dumb thing to worry about at this point. Well, it tells it just shows you like how how shallow this stuff can be sometimes, like how how shallow the public can be, because it's yeah. this movie about like so so much deeper, so many deeper topics and like. Um, you know, nuances to like what's going on in the actual culture in that time period. But people were like, can you believe heartthrob Natalie Portman shaved her head? And yep. and everybody's talking about how brave it is. And I think at the time, because of general audiences freaking out so much, it is a brave move to be a Hollywood A-list actress like that and then to shave your head. Uh, I did read that she was say, she said that she was looking forward to it because it's something that she'd always wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> for, for the record, I liked her with a shaved head. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, thought she I feel like better. that look isn't as weird now. Like, I feel like it's more, it's like more in fashion these days anyway. So it, it looked good. 
the scene where they show Valerie um, and like uh, they show the, the movie that she's on and everything, the, the whole crew in that shot was like a lot of the crew that was actually working in the movie. So oh, the, that was like their cool. chance to cameo instead of it being extras and stuff. It was actually the crew. Oh, that's super cool. That's awesome, man. Um, I, I did. I, I did wonder if do you guys think that the game was given away a little bit with the way all of the like guards were shot with their like weirdly shadowed faces? all the time like because I, I remember in the, yeah. in the movie like i don't know if i figured it out that it was v but i remember having like strong suspicions it felt like it was a little bit obvious but I, I, it's hard for me to really remember what i thought back in 2006 yeah i can't say that i i figured it out the first time i saw it i definitely didn't figure it out i would say but uh something i noticed because going into it i i knew to look for it was I can't say for sure because they, they make a big deal about his hands earlier in the movie. And then later on, he's shaving her head with like clear gloves on. And I can't say for sure, but it seemed like they, it, it, they weren't very scarred through those gloves. So I was like, that might have been a moment where it was like, they should have had like black gloves or something as he bu- as he buzzed her head because I was like, your, your TV's like, just too good these days, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, that's a good catch. Now I want to go back and look and see if that's true. <laughs> with the with the hands but as far as the yeah. faces go uh, i agree i didn't did not pick up on it the first time i watched it for sure but um but it's also very true to the comic i mean that's how right. that's exactly how they are presented in the comic you know all those shots all they're they're backlit they're just these black silhouettes um and so i like that i like it when they remain true to the comic uh, especially visually uh, in places like that, it makes me makes me happy. <laughs> I would have liked a little more of that, because that's one thing actually we kind of kind of forgot to touch on with the comic is that so much of it is black ink, and and, and the the sort of like white spaces are what form the faces often and what form the characters. Um, it, it's almost like an inversion of what you typically get, and it creates a lot more darkness on all these panels. And yeah, I did like to see that here. And and honestly, like, yeah, I I could have dealt with more of that throughout because um, it would have felt more in line with the comics. Um, At the very end, when she walks out onto the balcony and raises her hands up into the sky and the rain comes down, it's one of those moments again to me that is like borderline cringy. And And it's like there's a very fine line between it like landing the emotional moment they're trying to land and and bordering over into the kind of cringy territory and it 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 veers a little bit for me um and i think part of it is cutting twice to the flashback of uh, v coming out of the fire um i don't even know that they needed one cut back because i think we understood the moment um i definitely didn't need to that felt very that it felt like too much to me and, and maybe just like not quite trusting the audience to know what's going on here yeah, I think that's what it is. I, you know, I felt a little bit of that, but it still works for me. I think it's a, I think it's a scene of like rebirth, and I, and obviously that that's what they were trying to get at with the cutting back and forth between his rebirth and her rebirth. But like, uh, I don't know. I still, it still worked for me. And I think it's probably mostly because of like Natalie Portman's performance. Yeah, um, no, which was just because I, I buy her performance all the way through. Can Can I digress for a minute and just ask you guys, if someone put you personally through that, could you <laughs> forgive them? Because I couldn't, no. but I had this I had no. this discussion with my partner, and she absolutely understood. She's like, no, it was totally worth it. I completely see why she forgave him and what she got out of him. I was like, oh, my God, you're crazy. I could never forgive somebody <laughs> if they put me through that. Yeah. No the way. violation yeah. of trust there is, I mean, like, I think that the movie finds the right spot. Like, she, she is able to come to an understanding, yet not truly forgive him. And I think that's about as much as you can ask for in that moment. And I think, honestly, it hinges on Valerie being real. 
because if Valerie isn't real, I, I don't buy that she ever forgives him. I think if Valerie was a creation of V, it's a step too far. Agreed. Which is shows the genius of of Alan Moore, like having that that moment has so much impact in the in the comic and then into the movie because of because of that writing. I definitely would not forgive someone. I think I could come to an understanding because I could I could empathize with the fact that they had been through the same thing I had, yeah. and then you know sort of be distantly distantly connected in that way. But I, I I think that the way that they handle it in the movie definitely works for what I feel like I could actually do versus what happens in the comic and to become the next V no way. <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head with the Valerie thing though. She's definitely, definitely the, the element that, that holds it all together. Okay. So I'm going to read the last bit of summary here. Reading Surge's journal, Finch learns V is the result of human experimentation and is targeting those who detained him. Finch meets William Rookwood, who tells him about the program. 14 years earlier, Sutler, Security of Defense at the time, launched a secret project at Lark Hill, which resulted in the creation of the St. Mary's virus. Creedy, the current leader of the Norse Fire Party, suggested releasing the virus onto the UK, targeting St. Mary's School, a tube station, and a water treatment plant. The virus killed more than 100,000 people. The outbreak was blamed on a terrorist organization. Norse Fire used the fear and chaos to elevate Sutler to the office of High Chancellor, win an overwhelming majority in Parliament, and profit off the cure for the virus. Finch discovers that Rookwood was V in disguise. As November 5th nears, V distributes thousands of Guy Fawkes masks. On the eve of November 5th, Evie visits V, who shows her a train filled with ANFO explosives in the abandoned London underground, set to destroy Parliament. He leaves it to Evie to decide whether to use it. V meets Creedy, with whom he made a deal to surrender in exchange for Sutler's execution. After Creedy executes Sutler, V kills Creedy and his men. Mortally wounded, V tells Evie he loves her before dying. Finch finds Evie placing V's body aboard the train, disillusioned by the party's regime. Finch allows Evie to send the train. Thousands of citizens wearing Guy Fawkes masks march toward the Houses of Parliament, the military receives no order and allows the crowd to pass. As Parliament is destroyed, Finch asks Evie for V's identity, to which she replies, he was all of us. So this section contains the rise to power of the Chancellor. And uh, when this happens, the line is said, the more power he obtains, the more obvious his zealotry and the more aggressive his supporters become. And <laughs> that one, oh God, again, yes, just I really that spoke too. to me. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is really just speaking to this moment. <laughs> yeah, that really gave me chills. I was like, oh, how how is he so prescient there? That's terrible. <laughs> uh, what a great move. What a, what a brilliant move to, to send out the mass. And, and again, that underlines the idea of like welcoming all these other people to join in the cause and, um, you know, the anonymity that it grants. But and then also the unification under a essentially a banner um, and uh, a protest of anarchy in a way. Um, it just really works, uh, even though anarchy isn't said in the film. <laughs> it is still somewhat anarchy. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, you got Creedy, who is, like, I think very fairly obviously supposed to be kind of a Dick Cheney type uh, for this movie. But he also reminds me a little bit of Anthony Barr. Uh, personally, <laughs> I was like, this is the <laughs> Anthony Barr of this movie. <laughs> uh, sure. Just the, the, the dastardly, you know, right hand who, who makes so much of it possible. <laughs> is he Barr or is he Giuliani? <laughs> oh, Giuliani uh, is not nearly capable enough. <laughs> he's, he's, he's doofus. <laughs> 
but yeah, but as we as we touched on earlier, I thought I thought the the choice at the beginning of this section, you know, to show them taking that terrible uh, dastardly move of choosing to release the virus on their own population really, really ups the villain level. And as you guys said at the beginning, you know, it does kind of turn them into the big cartoon villain as opposed to, you know, them being the humanized villain that we get in the comic, um, which, you know, suits the purposes of the film, I suppose. Yeah, I, I really felt like um, watching this movie now and knowing like what gu- the Guy Fox mask represents in the world. Luke mentioned in the previous episode, just like seeing it at protests, seeing it be become the symbol throughout the world, um, seeing all those people together with Guy Fox masks at the end. It has, you know, I, I feel like it, it would have been even it's not that it's cringy. It's just that it's it's um, like a more Hollywood wrap it with a bow ending where everybody gets together and, and the, the forces of good can overcome the forces of evil. Um, and it's clear that that's going to be the case going forward. Um, but like it means a lot to see all those people together because like it, it does really represent like a unification of the world in a way because we see this guy fox mask in different countries and different rebellions and revolutions throughout the world everything that goes on with anonymous and like all the things that that people have have like i I think this movie had a lot to do even though the comic came first i think the movie made it even more popular to to you know use the guy fox mask to represent sort of like anarchy and and the the little guy absolutely i don't think it would be the instantly recognizable symbol that it is today without the movie like the movie is what made it this worldwide thing. I'm, you know, I would bet that that's the reason Anonymous chose it, you know, is because they were they were exposed to it through the film. <laughs> I think I read that they adopted it like two years after the film came out. So it was pretty wow. fresh when they when they adopted it. So I, I do want to talk about a couple things here before we get to the end, because I feel like there's gonna be a lot to say about the very end. Um, but before we get there, a um, couple of interesting moments. First off, Finch going to the camp to put things together still occurs, but he does not take LSD in the film. <laughs> um, probably <laughs> yeah, a bummer. smart decision to not get into all of that. Wasted, <laughs> wasted opportunity. We could have had a psychedelic <laughs> drug trip moment in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't get that, but we do get this giant domino setup, which I, I, I want to, uh, I want that to be a real thing. Like I assume that was a real setup. It was, yeah. it was okay. Cool. Cause it looked, it looked really cool. Um, it did remind me though, that it, I don't think the movie did as much to like set up the fact that V has a different sort of mind partially or maybe even mostly caused by the experiments that were done to him. I don't think that's as clear. So I remember feeling like it was a little bit like extra, a little bit weird. It was like, he's going to take time to set up this like 10,000 piece domino set just for this one moment of like, no one's even there to see it. It's just for us, the audience. Like I, I had more trouble buying some of the theatrics in the film because I felt like I hadn't been sold on this guy's sort of altered mental state. Whereas in the comics, it it felt more in line with the character that I had been presented with. Yeah. Uh, There's a moment when, when Evie leaves and he's like, you see that he's like mourning that he like throws the mask and he's like, he's like burying his face in the shadows. And then there's the moment of him like cooking her breakfast and like the dancing scene and the love. And I think a lot more time is spent sort of building up him as like a human being, uh, and like, you know, I, I don't know how that cuts into him being a symbol. I don't know how you guys feel about that. But I think he still represents the things he represents. But like you said, it's almost like they spent more time doing that rather than showing how he's a different sort of thinker and how he he might, you know, he's been like he's a product of his environment in a way. 
Well, they spend a lot of time showing how eccentric he is. I mean, he quotes Shakespeare. Yeah. His favorite film is, uh, you know, that sword fight. Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah, the Count of Monte Cristo. You know, he's he's dueling the suit of armor, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's definitely very eccentric. And so I've, I feel like the, uh, the dominoes tied directly into that. Yeah. Speaking of the dominoes, 22,000 dominoes. It took four professionals 200 hours to set those up. I was wondering. Thank you for having those statistics. That's cool. (laughs) I wonder if Hugo Weaving actually got to flick it. He 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 did. did. That's awesome. It was Hugo Weaving, too. (laughs) That must have felt amazing. Yeah, he got to. (laughs) Yeah, right. Did he actually speak through the mask, or did he do, you know, record all his lines after the fact in a sound booth? So they attempted to have a microphone in the mask and then a, a microphone over his forehead where they would try to pick up his audio while he was acting. But ultimately, that didn't work out. So they, they ADR'd all his lines in, in post-production. Uh, the mask just like muffled his voice too much, so they re-recorded everything. I suspected that. But that probably... was him in the mask, though. That was him, yeah, in the suit. For the most part. I, um, I, I assume he used some stunt doubles. Certain scenes within the movie featured James Purifoy, who we've actually talked about before, Luke. Um he uh, was originally cast in the role, but Hugo Weaving replaced him four weeks into filming. Uh, we- Weaving's voice was simply, you know, ADR'd over all of Purifoy's performance. Um, director James McTeague has said in an interview, can I tell the difference? Yeah. Can the audience? I doubt it. <laughs> so there are a few scenes in there where it's not actually Hugo Weaving. Wow. Wait, so the, uh, mask and cloak. Four weeks into filming, he was replaced. Remind me when James Purifoy was, when we talked about him? Uh, Altered Carbon. I think he was in, uh, he's like the, the elderly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not elderly, but he's the older, yeah, he's the older guy. He plays uh, Lawrence Bancroft. He plays Bancroft in, in uh, Altered Carbon. And, and yeah, I couldn't find why he was replaced. I, I don't, I'm not really exactly sure. I just saw that he was. I don't know if they would have commented on it just for the sake of Purifoy. You know, I, I don't know if it was on bad terms, good terms. I don't know what it was. Right, yeah. I mean, it could have been on either side, too. I mean, he could have decided, you know, I, I can't act in this mask. I hate this. I'm out of here. <laughs> right, Yeah. So a, a couple other things I want to point out. First off, revolution without dancing is not a revolution worth having. I thought that was an excellent line, um, which I, I think also speaks to a larger point about like there needs to be reasons for this, right? There needs to be um, there needs to be hope and there needs to be something to look forward to, um, which I think is good for us all to remember uh, why it's important to fight, right? Um, and then uh, and then there's this weird bollocks joke that I, I I totally don't think I even noticed it the first time I watched it, but this time. Like, it comes back, like, four times in the movie where, like, a character just, like, sees something and then, like, waits a moment and goes, bollocks. And, it, and like, every, like, Creedy does it. Like, the the spray paint girl does it. Like, different people keep doing it. It was okay, but it was kind of a weird thing to just, like, keep circling back to. Like, I don't know. It was, like, did, did the screeners just find it really funny or something? Like, I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that, that I thought from I don't know from what I understood, it's just sort of a thing that they say, like British people. Yeah, but it feels like something that like I don't know. It felt like somebody else shoehorning it in to me rather than it being natural. I can see that. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, I don't know. They shoehorned it in to make it feel more British. Exactly. That's yeah, what right. it felt like. Like they were trying to British it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So add some bollocks and, and add, add wanker. Add wanker a few times. Another small thing that I'm sure JS, uh, well, actually, I'm curious to know if you agree with this. There's the line that's right from the comics where he says, uh, beneath this mask, there is more than flesh. Beneath this mask, there is an idea, Mr. Creedy, and ideas are bulletproof. 
which is exactly the line from the comic, except for they inserted Mr. Creedy into the middle of this wonderful line, which really frustrates me because he knows who is who is who he's addressing. Mr. Creedy knows he's addressing him. So there's no reason to put it in there. And I was like, I, I don't know why they did it. Like, I, I just it just maddens me. I'm like, don't don't mess up this great yeah. line with this un, un, uh, unimportant, unneeded address. Um, or, or am I missing something here? I don't see what it added. Yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from with that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you have this great line, yeah. don't throw this un, like unneeded name in there. Like he knows who you're talking to him. You don't need to say it. <laughs> anyway, it was a weird, weird thing. Small thing. I feel like it's it's like a mustache twirling sort of like villain thing usually to be like, mm, yes, Mr. Bond. And like no, say- and, you know, it, it reminds me, it's a Hugo Weaving, right? It's Mr. Anderson. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit yeah, of that. There you go. Maybe it's just like a Hugo Weaving <laughs> yeah. thing. Maybe he likes to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and he's like, yes, Mr. Gandalf in, uh, in Lord of the Rings. When he's it, it could easily have been an ad lib. It could have just been something Hugo Weaving said and they left it in. Yeah, maybe. Uh Anyway, yes, we're arriving here at the end of the movie, which I do have a lot to talk about uh, personally, but I want to let you guys talk first. I feel like I've been saying a lot. Um, But yes, the romantic love has been built up and we hit the crescendo of the movie with the final big action set piece, the slow motion, and then the explosion in the train. Um, What do you guys think of this part? Uh, Well, clearly in the action scene, this is where we finally see the Matrix come out, right? Yeah. With the the slow motion knives twirling and... It's a very, very Matrix moment there with the fight in the subway. Uh, the love I have strong opinions on, and they're not all pleasant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so I know this is obviously a very standard part of filmmaking and, and screenwriting. You know, you need a love interest. Everyone says you need a love interest, you need a love story. Um, and so I know why they put it in, but I don't agree that it needed to be there. I feel like, you know, Evie and V could have had a very strong bond and did have a very strong bond. And she could have cared about him just as much as she did without turning to the L word. I just thought that yeah. that was the the path of least resistance and they did it just to please the audience, you know, or what they thought would please the audience. And I don't think it was necessary. I think that the the connection between them was strong enough that, you know... We we could have felt that without having it thrown in our faces, you know, that explicitly. I, I totally agree. I, I wish that it wasn't in there. I wish, like you said, that the relationship was just as strong with no hint of any sort of emotion, like no so, no hint of any sort of love, like no need for a kiss. There was no need for any of that. And like, I get that, like, it means more for V, like V, like at the end is like, you know, professes his love and then says like, you know, you, you, he, he almost, she almost gave him pause in his journey and his, in his mission. Like if there was anything that was going to stop him from fulfilling his mission, it would be like loving someone and being like, I don't want to die. I want to stay and, you know, reap the benefits of all this stuff that I've been trying to, you know, once life is back to normal and everything is, is better in the world, I want to be able to just relax with someone I love. And I get that. I, I don't think it makes for a better story though. I would rather have just seen their bond be very, very deep and have no love sort of connection. So I wonder if part of this is like a remnant of the the previous version with James Purifoy, right? Like I feel like a younger V could have could have like lent itself to a romantic connection more than Hugo Weaving. I think we're all aware of Hugo Weaving and how old he is, and it, it to me it it I don't know the exact age difference, but we're we're generally aware, and it, it felt like uh, this this relationship could have been sort of a fatherly one 
and could have been a really powerful fatherly one. And, and there could have been a love there, if it, you know, just not a romantic love. And you could have even still had a kiss, maybe put a, a, plant a kiss on the forehead or something, you know, or on the cheek. Um, but I, I do kind of think they loved the idea of the kiss on the lips of the mask. Like they thought that would look really cool. Um, so maybe yeah. they got too sort of uh, too sort of happy about that look. And I, I want to say that might have even been a panel in the comic, if I'm remembering correctly. That might have been right out of there. I don't know. I'd have to check. Mm. I, I you know with this whole like V being everyone ending, it it also makes sense for like it, it's like this idea of like you don't love everyone romantically, but you do love everyone if you I, I mean i love everyone in the world you know in in that way that everyone do should you, love humanity <laughs> every single person every fucking one every single person you hear that listener he loves you i love you but uh yeah you know like i i think like it didn't need to be romantic i just i don't know okay i, I stand by that no I'm, I'm with you guys uh so the last thing uh or one of the last things i want to talk about uh i i had to laugh at the idea of the military in this moment, just dropping their weapons and letting an entire <laughs> crowd of people walk into their ranks with unknown motives, unknown whether or not they have weapons. What are they going to do when they get to us? Uh, it, it, the whole final sequence with the way the crowd acts, um, they're, they're, they're like highly disciplined. They all keep their masks on to the same moment. Then they pull them all off at the same time. Uh, the military all stands down. Um, there's just like a lot that goes just so perfectly at the end. It, it, it strains credibility yeah. a little bit for me to where, again, I feel like there's a fine line and to me it veers a little bit too far into the, into the bad direction. <laughs> um, that just keeps me from loving this ending. Yeah. And I guarantee that Alan Moore hated that because like, <laughs> he's like, this is becoming not anywhere close to what can happen in reality. It's not realistic. Yeah. And like, it might make for a nice clean story yeah. that, that it's has a little good Pollyanna, morality right? to it and, it's like, yeah, it's it's very like it's a neat ending that Alan Moore would definitely scoff at. Yeah, well, honestly, that that kind of turns it into a fairy tale for me because I yeah. mean, it's so unrealistic that you know it, and and maybe that ties into you know the book ending with Evie, like, hey, I'm telling you a story. We're not actually living this, and maybe in the story version that I'm telling you. This was the beautiful ending, and this is how it happened, and nobody got hurt. <laughs> We're getting into 300 territory a little bit there. <laughs> but yeah, I agree, especially in our, our current uh, year where we've seen you know, the police beating people repeatedly yeah. and all over the globe, you know, to just see them throw down their arms and not do anything was a little ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, the message is there, obviously, right? It's like the, the idea is that hopefully these soldiers would have enough humanity to realize, like, we don't have orders, we're not being told to do anything, so why would we want to create, to start killing people who are not, you know, who are a part of our country and everything? But unfortunately, we've seen that that's not the case. Like, yeah. it, it, the, At some said, point, things can change, and you can see people throw down their arms and stuff, but usually it's not before any fighting has occurred. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so, yeah, I mean, this is something added for the film. This is not how it goes down in the comic. In the comic, the, the city is in chaos at the end. People are, you know, rioting. There's battles taking place in the streets. And, it, you know, the hope is that maybe this will lead to something better, uh, sort of from the ashes. Um, whereas we sort of fast track right to that and skip over all the messy parts here. Um, which, yeah, I can yep. see Alan Moore not being a fan of that at all. I, I mean, if you guys are ready, I think that leads us into... Uh talking about 
book versus movie yeah. in this situation. Like we're gonna we're gonna pick our favorites. Um, it's sort you know we've been doing it this year, and it, it's tougher than, than sometimes, and it's easier sometimes. Yeah. And I, I want you 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 to go first, Luke. This time I've been going first a lot recently. I feel like which one which one are you taking the book or the comic in this okay. case? Or and we'll have we'll have JS. You'll you'll break the tie or or maybe just pile <laughs> on. We'll see how it goes. Or maybe you'll be on a lone, a lone voice. Um. So yes. Uh, book versus comic here. Um, this is tough. I mean, uh, I, I think I am on record in the previous episode of like having criticisms about the comic. Um, definitely there were things I didn't like about it. Um, and then once again, in this movie, uh, I, I think while there, a lot of the changes were great, I, I still had little quibbles here and there, things that kind of got cringy for me. Um, so I, I'm kind of mixed on both, although generally positive on both. But when I came down to it, it's the comic for me. Um, I, I'm going to give it to the comic as my preference, but, uh, yeah, I'm curious to know where you guys are at. Cause I, I feel like it's not going to be unanimous at the time, but who knows? Who knows? I think the comic, you know, does a great job of like creating nuanced characters, creating chaos, creating what could potentially happen in the real world. Um, and you know, I think it's, it's, especially when it came out, it's this, this story that we can all look to now as like, what can you do when a fascist regime has taken over your country or whatever? It, it, there are things in it that it just it feels eerie that they're so similar to real life and things that have happened. He had a lot of foresight. I think he has a lot of great ideas. And I, and then I think this movie did did a lot to sort of change from the source material, update it for the modern era, cha- you know, almost fundamentally change it in ways that lead to a different kind of story. And it's a fun comic book story. And I think V is an iconic character. The mask is important because of this movie, I would say. It's in, around the world, raised awareness for that story. And I think it is more approachable for audiences. But in this case, I am going to take the comic because of, wow. the, I think, just overall the importance. I mean, it's like a seminal, it's a seminal work for him. Well, I guess I don't have a tie to break, but um, this is an interesting question. Because for me, you know, 90% of the time... I choose the written word over the visual adaptation. I just think, you know, there's so much more time to explore in a book uh, and so much more nuance that you just don't get in a film. And so I almost always favor the written word. However, in this case, um, I feel that the movie really clarified and distilled... um, and, and made the story a lot cleaner. You know, there's a lot of rambling uh, in the comic, like Finch taking LSD at the, you know, the <laughs> like there's there's things in the comic that kind of veer around. Um, sure. And so overall, the story, the story is a lot messier and and the mm-hmm. message is less clear. Um, and um, for that reason, just because of, you know, the takeaway that you get from it, um, I prefer the film. Uh, I like that they, you know, they made the bad guys really bad, you know, instead of them, because in the, in the, in the book, they rose from, from civilization dissolved, essentially, and fascism rose up out of that to restore order, which doesn't really make it bad, actually, looking at, look that when you look at it in that context. But, you know, when you look at it in the context of somebody who has done a deliberately evil act and killed hundreds of thousands of people in order to advance their own interests, then it is very clearly evil. Um, And I like the message of of collective action, you know, that we can all work together, even though it's, you know, disnified and kind of ridiculous in that final scene. 
Um, <laughs> but still, it's a powerful message. And as we've seen, it resonated around the world, you know, with the mask being synonymous with many things now and uh, synonymous with revolution, really. And so yeah. just just for that, you know, for that distilling of the idea um, and for Evie being such a much stronger character, which I really, really appreciated in the movie. Um, I'm going to go with the movie. I like that. I, I'm glad I'm glad somebody gave it to the movie because there there was a lot of smart changes made. Uh, Evie in particular, just way better <laughs> in the film. And you're right. There is a lot of meandering. There's a lot of side characters in the comic that that um, probably could have been shaved off. Um, it almost felt like they were kind of padding the story at times. Um, you know, maybe that's not fair, but but it, it is. A little, it's a little bit sprawling. I did want to say uh, I like what JS said about about Evie. And, and I think she really does in this version of the story become kind of the the main character in a way because V is sort of like the symbol and he, he is obviously in the movie as well but uh she, you know she has the arc she has the she has the experiences and and like I thought and obviously a very strong Natalie Portman yeah she's the narrator very strong Natalie Portman performance mm-hmm. so uh, you know I, it's not that I dislike the movie either so yeah. I'm glad we're all on the same no, page that's good that's good all right, well, then we're going to call it here. Uh, JS, if people wanted to find you online, find the Overcast podcast, read some of your books, where do they go? Where can they find you? Uh, probably the easiest place is to just go to my author website, which is arquinworlds.com, and that will have links to everything else. <laughs> yeah, and the Overcast podcast, by the way, uh, subscribe to it. Uh, you know, there's new stories uh, frequently, uh, excellent speculative fiction uh, with a particular focus on the Pacific Northwest, but from authors all over the country and all over the world, I believe, right? Um, all over, Cool yeah. podcast, definitely check it out. And my story on there, They Come From the Void, I think is the most recent uh, episode still, so check it out. Yes, although actually by the time this comes out, it won't be anymore because there's another episode coming out this week. <laughs> <laughs> all right episode 137 and then maybe listen to the new one too you know it's not me but it's okay you can listen to it <laughs> uh i wanted to say i listened to that to luke's episode the the they come from the void episode and i really like the way that you you know interpreted his story in a way you know i think it's cool because we we talk about adaptations and you adapted his story to a you know an audio medium in that way and i really enjoyed listening and you know I know you're right here and I don't know how you feel about compliments, but you have a great podcasting voice. You have a great radio voice. And, uh, you know, that's I, I, I thought it was a really good episode. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was honestly surreal for me. I've never had uh, my my work professionally narrated like that. So it was a cool experience listening to it for sure. So, yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for being on. This was a lot of fun. Hopefully our listeners uh, got something out of this. I know that this is like a weird time to be putting out this episode. So hopefully everybody is safe and nothing too insane has happened in the intervening times between recording this and when this comes out. Um, But, you know, we're right there with you. Stay strong, everybody. Um, And yeah, once again, thanks for coming on, JS. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. So if you liked this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use, or if you're on YouTube, like the video, maybe comment, let us know what you liked about it, make sure to subscribe, all that good stuff. If you wanted to support this podcast in another way, we also have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Every month we do a bonus episode. We have like close to 29 or 30 now. And they, uh, we typically do something that's adaptation adjacent in some way or something that's related to 
some of the projects that we're either talking about, you know, upcoming adaptations, news, that kind of thing. But for Halloween, just recently, we did one where we kind of talked about our favorite uh, Halloween time media, whether it's movies, video games, books. And then we also uh, talked about our favorite costumes or past costume stories we had about that. It was kind yeah, of fun. a little more a little more of a relaxed fit kind of episode. But we, I thought it was fun and and. It was kind of nice right now to not have to do anything too elaborate with everything going on. So if you want, well, yeah, more of a kind of relaxed look at, you know, our our tastes and, and um, you know, just having some Halloween fun, definitely check that out. I know it's just coming out a few days after Halloween, but, uh, you know, we can, you can celebrate the, the spooky stuff on all the way up till Christmas, I think, and year round, maybe. Um, <laughs> year round, year round. Yeah, year round. Um also, if you would like to connect with us on social media, we're at Ink to Film on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and join the Council of Inklings on Facebook, where we uh, talk with our listeners and post polls and news and all that good stuff. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's going to be it. Uh, hopefully, things are going well, and if they're not, once again, remember V... Uh, we will be back in, I think, two weeks. I think next week we're taking the week off. We'll be putting out a From the Vault episode. So uh, we'll be back in two weeks um, with Cinderella. I'll give you a little preview here. Um, uh, you know, we'll be reading the Brothers Grimm story, and I think it's a 1997 adaptation in particular we're going to be watching. So check out check out that in the intervening time if you would like. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It should be, it should be pretty fun. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.